in my opinion, one of the most interesting parts of the New Testament letters is often the closing verses. Yet those are the verses that many of us skip right over when we're reading the letters of the New Testament. I mean, who in here hasn't had the experience of, you know, you're reading Ephesians or you're reading Colossians or 1 Thessalonians or 1 Peter and you read through and you get near the end and you just close your Bible because you're done. But you don't read the closing verses. Don't worry, I won't ask for a show of hands on that one. But we find in the end of those letters sometimes some of the most unique gems and precious jewels really found anywhere in the New Testament. And hopefully we will see a few of those here at the close of the book of Philippians. So if you're not already there, turn with me to the very last chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, his dear friends, the Philippians, and follow along as I read chapter 4, verses 20 through 23. Paul closes by saying, Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, or depending on some versions, be with your spirit. Amen. Now I have some news for you that may confuse you at first and may even shock you if you've never heard this or thought about this. But here is the announcement. These are probably the only verses that Paul wrote in the book of Philippians. In fact, he may not have even written these. Or maybe you're saying, whoa, whoa, hold it. What? I thought Paul wrote this entire letter. He did. But he probably only wrote these few verses. Let me explain. It was Paul's practice, and by the way, not an uncommon practice in the first century. It was Paul's practice to dis dictate his letters to an amanuensis or a stenographer, and then he would simply sign off at the end. Let me show you a few examples. Go back to Romans chapter 16 for just a quick moment. Romans chapter 16, this very interesting ending to what many believe was Paul's most profound letter, Romans. Romans chapter 16, verse 21 Timothy, my fellow worker, and Lucius, Jason, Sosipater, my countrymen, greet you. Verse 22, I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. Who's that guy? That's the guy who wrote down what Paul dictated to him. Paul was the author of the book of Romans, which was inspired by the Holy Spirit, but Tertius wrote or recorded what Paul wanted written. Look at the next letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 16. We see another example of this kind of thing or another illustration. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 21. As Paul is winding down the letter, he says in verse 21, the salutation 
with my own hand, Paul's. You see, Paul probably did not actually manually write any of his letters. But it is still accurate to say that he was the author of them. They were his thoughts, his content, his vocabulary, directed by the Holy Spirit of God. But they weren't written by his own hand in his own handwriting. The only exception to that may be the book of Galatians. Skip 2 Corinthians and look at Galatians chapter 6 to see how Paul closes out that letter. Galatians chapter 6 verse 11. Right here near the end, Paul says, See with what large letters, or some translations read this way, See what a large letter I have written to you with my own hand. That may mean that Paul wrote this entire letter himself rather than using an amanuensis or stenographer. When Paul received news that the Galatians were turning to the law for justification and for sanctification, rather than continuing to develop a relationship with the Lord Jesus through the Spirit, Paul was deeply concerned, deeply troubled. So he may have grabbed his pen immediately to write this entire letter himself instead of finding someone to whom he could dictate it. There is some evidence or some some clue, I would say, that Paul may have had eye problems that hindered him from seeing clearly enough to write on his own. If that was the case, then that would partially explain why he dictated his letters and signed them at the end to verify their authenticity. Although, as I said a moment ago, we do know from historical records and archaeological records, etc., that it was a common practice in the first century for many people to dictate their letters instead of actually writing them themselves. Colossians 4.18, 2 Thessalonians 3.17 are further proof that this is the way Paul put together or produced his letters. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Go past Philippians, Colossians 1st and 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 17. <coughs> the salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every letter so I write. In other words, what Paul is saying there is I am putting my stamp, my seal of approval on this letter. I, I, I've dictated it. I've read back through it. It says exactly what I want it to say. Here's my signature to sign off on it, to prove that this is from me. This was Paul's practice. That's why I said a moment ago that the final verses of Philippians 4 are probably the only ones actually written by Paul with his own hand, and he may not even have written those. He may have simply signed his name right at the end and not written any of the actual verses themselves. But again, let me emphasize, Paul was the author of those words that were inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. So let's go back to Philippians 4 to see what we can learn from those closing verses written by Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. You may remember that Paul closed the body of his letter 
with the great promise in verse 19. This, beginning in verse 20 through, through verse 23, which we're going to look at, this is sort of the closing, but the body of the letter ends in verse 19 with this statement, this promise, and my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. That ends the body of the letter. Coming off that promise, Paul expresses this doxology. He says in verse 20, Now to to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. That is a doxology. What is a doxology? A doxology is a hymn or statement of praise to God. A doxology can be sung or it can be recited. Some of the doxologies in the New Testament were undoubtedly put to music or sung a cappella. Some were statements of praise to God that were to be spoken or recited by believers as a part of their worship. Verse 20 is a doxology. The first part of this verse could be translated like this. Now to God, even our Father, be glory forever and ever. I personally think that's the way it should be translated. Now to God, even our Father, be glory forever and ever. You see, this was a way for Paul to make an exclamation. He is saying, in essence, this great God who supplies our needs, verse 19, is even our Father. Unfortunately, maybe we've grown so used to that idea that it's no longer special to us. But beloved, understand, this is not an overstatement. That, that would have been a mind-boggling thought to people in Paul's day. The Jew of the Old Testament would have never dreamed of calling God his personal father. Yes, God fathered the nation of Israel, but it was a foreign thought to refer to God as your personal father. So I believe here verse 20 is an exclamation. Now to God, even our Father. This doxology comes at the end of Paul's teaching, which was his normal pattern. He would often, if you read through his letters, after he would teach something that was very important, very profound, he would follow it with a doxology. But there is an exception to that in his letters. There is one place where he precedes his teaching with a doxology. That is found in the previous letter, Ephesians chapter 1. Go back just one letter to Ephesians chapter 1. And notice how Paul opens this letter. Verse 3, he says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved one. Here Paul opens with a doxology in verse 3 because of what he's about to write in verses 4 and following regarding God's great gift of salvation in Christ. 
But even though this doxology is before rather than after a great truth, it is still in response to a great truth, namely the work of the triune God in salvation. Now the doxology in Philippians 4 is in response, also it's in response to a great truth. Now go back there to Philippians chapter 4. The doxology in verse 20 is in response to the great truth in verse 19 about God meeting our needs and the great truth at the beginning of this verse, specifically that this God who meets our needs is the Father of those who are in Christ. As Paul thought on the incredible nature of that truth, his heart was filled with praise. Hendrickson had this to say about Paul's response, quote, For Paul, doctrine is never a dry matter. Whenever it occupies his mind, it also fills his heart with praise. Praise was Paul's response to the truth of God's fatherly care of those who are in Christ. And don't miss the, the, the last phrase of that statement. God is not, I think you know this, God is not the father of every human being. He is the father of those who are in Christ. The Bible knows nothing of the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of all of mankind. That was a very, very popular phrase or slogan a number of years back. And although the phrase or the slogan isn't used all that often today, the concept, is, the concept still permeates much of, of the thinking of today that there is the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of all of mankind. That is not true biblically. In John 8, Jesus said this to some of the people of his day, You are of your father the devil. God is not the father of every human being. There's a sense in which he is the creator of every human being, but he is not the father of every human being. God is only the father of those who have trusted Christ and are in Christ. That's why Paul refers to God as our God and our Father. And then he says this here in verse 20. To him be glory forever and ever. The phrase forever and ever literally means unto the ages of the ages. It's a cyclical term. Forever and ever unto the ages of the ages. And of course it means without ceasing. Having offered that great statement of praise, Paul begins to close the letter. He says in verse 21, and all of, all of your translations or versions may not read exactly this way, but verse 21, he says, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. If you are not a student of the New Testament, then it may surprise you to hear the word saint used by Paul here in this verse. Unfortunately, that word has so many religious connotations that are completely unbiblical. The term saints was Paul's favorite title for Christians. He uses it approximately 60 times in his letters. So what does it mean? Well, as you know, probably, according to some religious groups, saints are saints because of their exceedingly unsurpassing devotion to Christ. Therefore... According to this view, 
They have special clout with God in heaven to be mediators and intercessors for people here on the earth and even intercessors for people in the made-up place called purgatory. That definition has nothing to do with the biblical definition of the word saints. A saint isn't someone who has died and gone to heaven and left behind a flawless reputation. A saint isn't even someone who lives an irreproachable life. But that's what many people think. Or, as one little boy put it, a saint is a dead person you hang in the window to keep the light out. That's not a saint either. None of those definitions are true of the biblical word saints. The term literally means holy ones. It may be translated that way in your version. And it refers to every Christian because of our position in Christ. Every Christian is a saint in the biblical sense of the term, even though every Christian doesn't live as saintly as he or she ought to live. The emphasis of the term saint is on position rather than practical reality. It refers to those who are set apart to God. We don't always live holy lives like we ought to, but if we know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we are positionally set apart to God. We are saints. The Bible never, please hear this, the Bible never, ever uses the term saints to refer to some special class of Christians who have achieved a certain level of spirituality. Never. It is used to refer to every true child of God. Back up just a couple chapters, chapter 1, the opening of this letter, and you'll see this. Chapter 1, verse 1, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ. Here it is again, literally translated, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That shows us that the term saints is not reserved for some class of super spiritual Christians. The term refers to ordinary believers. Here in verse 1, Paul uses the term to refer to everyone in the congregation at Philippi who is a believer. In fact, think about it this way. The term saints can even be rightly used to refer to believers who are living lives that fall far short of what they ought to be. Let me show you one example. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians. If you know anything at all about the church at Corinth, then you know it was full of people who were not living the kinds of lives they should have been living. This church was characterized by disharmony, by division. There was even a man in chapter 5 living in an immoral relationship with his stepmother. According to chapter 6, they were taking each other to court. I mean, this was, this was a messed up church. But look at what Paul says in the opening verses. Verse 1, Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. With all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. 
Now think about this, beloved. This, was, this group was probably the most carnal group of Christians Paul ever wrote to, but he still refers to them as saints. And again, I emphasize that's because the, the point of this term, the, the emphasis of the term saint is on position rather than practical reality. It refers to those who are set apart to God positionally. Now back to our text there in Philippians 4. So when Paul says, greet every saint, he is not referring to a group of people who deserve worship. He is referring to Christians who worship God, not other people. As one man put it, saints are not to be worshipped, saints are to worship. Paul said that in his definition of a Christian in this very letter. In chapter 3, verse 3, he gave this definition. He says, For we are the true circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. By the way, that is, in my opinion, one of the best definitions of a Christian there is in the whole Bible. Philippians 3, 3. There are a number of different ways you can describe a Christian. A Christian is a believer, a disciple, a lover of God, a follower of Christ, a child of God. Or you can describe a Christian the way Paul does in Philippians 3.3. We are the true circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Notice that the verse describes internal character and nature as Paul lists the marks of true Christians. And the first mark of a true Christian, according to this verse, is we worship God in the Spirit. In other words, our worship is not mere external form. Our worship isn't just liturgy. It's it's not just going through the motions. Our worship stems from within where the Holy Spirit dwells. That's why Paul says we are the true circumcision. Of course, he's referring to those who considered themselves to be children of God just because they were circumcised. He's referring to the Jews who had that mentality. And he says, no, just listen, just because you're Jewish, that doesn't make you a child of God. The Jews worshipped, but it was empty external ritual. A true child of God is someone who worships God in the Spirit. And of course, this comes right out of John 4. You're familiar with that text where Jesus is talking to the woman at the well. And we read that as they got talking, they started talking about worship, or she did. And Jesus said in verse 23, But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. So Jesus says, God is seeking true worshipers, and a true worshiper is someone who worships in spirit. That means the worship is not mere external form, ritual, going through the liturgy, but it is genuine and from within. And a true worshiper is someone who worships in truth. That means the worship is of the true God and according to His truth, the Bible. You see, many people worship. You know that. Hindus worship, Muslims worship, Buddhists worship. Probably safe to say that most people on planet Earth worship. Now, there are atheists and there are people who say there is no God, but most people on planet Earth worship. But they're not true worshipers 
as Jesus describes in John 4, because it's external ritual given to a false God based on a false standard, not the Bible. And that's why Paul says in Philippians 3.3, the true child of God is a true worshiper. Have you ever thought about your salvation this way, beloved? God saved you to be a worshiper? You can't say it any more basic than that. God saved us to be worshipers. And remember that worship is a lifestyle because it is from within. It's worship that is prompted by the Holy Spirit who resides within and prompts our spirit to worship. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says that when we present our bodies to God as living sacrifices, then we are worshiping. Worship is a lifestyle that comes from within. It's not just external form and ritual and liturgy. True Christians are worshipers of God. Saints are worshipers of God. A Christian is a saint. A saint is a Christian. They all mean the same thing. And so in Philippians 4, as Paul closes out his letter, he says, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. I can't help but believe that Paul grinned when he dictated that last phrase or wrote that last phrase, whichever the case may have been. Especially those who are of Caesar's household. That is a reference to government workers and employees, servants and slaves of Caesar. In all likelihood, some of these were the soldiers, the very soldiers who guarded Paul. They were given the responsibility of guarding Paul, so they thought he was chained to them. But in reality, from God's perspective and Paul's perspective, they were chained to Paul. Do you remember what the book of Acts tells us right at the end? That during this imprisonment, Paul was in his own rented house. He was under house arrest. He was guarded 24-7 by Roman soldiers. But he was free to have people come to him. He could have conversations. He could dictate letters like he did. The letter of Philippians and Colossians and Ephesians. And the Roman soldiers heard all of it. They heard Paul dictate his letters. They heard him have conversations. They heard heard him hold Bible studies. They were a captive audience. And as a result, some of them, it appears, embraced Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. God used Paul's ministry as a prisoner to cause them to realize their sin and their need for the Savior. So the gospel was spreading in the imperial empire. You may remember that back in chapter 1, verse 12, Paul had told the Philippians that his circumstances had actually resulted in the furtherance of the gospel. He opens his letter by saying, now listen, I don't want, paraphrasing here, I don't want you to be concerned about me. I know you've heard the story. I was was under arrest for two years back in Israel, and now I've been here two years in Rome and two years plus in both places, so close to five years. And understandably, Paul's friends in Philippi were concerned about him, and they were worried about him. And he basically says in chapter 1, listen, don't worry about me. I, I, I know you've heard about my circumstances, but my circumstances have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. 
They were concerned that Paul would be frustrated. Like, here I am, bound, and I need to be out as a missionary, traveling the Roman Empire, spreading the gospel. And oh, how Paul must be so frustrated that he can't be used of God. And Paul says in chapter 1, I am being used of God. God is using my circumstances. And this is a case in point. The gospel was making its way through Caesar's empire. Barclay put it this way, quote, The crucified Galilean carpenter had already begun to rule those who ruled the greatest empire in the world, end quote. J.B. Lightfoot has researched some of the ancient Roman government documents. This is, this is fascinating to me. He has researched some of the ancient Roman government documents, and he discovered, he has discovered that many of the names on those lists correspond exactly with the names that Paul mentions in Romans 16 at the close of that letter. Now that's not to say that every Christian in the city of Rome came to the Lord because of Paul. We know that the gospel had already penetrated Rome before Paul ever got there because Paul wrote to the church at Rome before he wrote this letter to the Philippians. So there were already Christians in Rome before Paul got there. One of the ways the gospel arrived in Rome was by the converts from the day of Pentecost who had come to Jerusalem from Rome, heard the gospel, embraced the gospel, and took it back to Rome. And in fact, most scholars believe that's how the church at Rome was started. It wasn't started by an apostle, by Peter, or by Paul. It was started by believers who heard the gospel in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost and took it back to Rome. So the point is, Paul was not responsible for every Christian in Rome. He, he wasn't behind their salvation. But Paul's presence allowed the gospel to break into the inner circle of government workers, government officials, government employees, government slaves, government soldiers, government servants. So the gospel was being spread throughout the Roman government. Now think about this, beloved. No matter how strongly Paul would have wanted to make inroads into the imperial establishment, and his letters indicate he did long for that opportunity. No matter how strongly Paul would have wanted to make inroads into the imperial establishment, he probably could not have done it. But God in his sovereignty arranged the circumstances in such a way so as to bring Paul right into the capital of the great Roman Empire. God planted him there in Rome. Then God used Paul as a prisoner to spread the gospel to Caesar's palace. Isn't that the way God works? So often we can't figure out what he's doing or why he's doing what he is doing. But mark it, he never makes mistakes. God is so good. He works all things together for good to those who love him, and he works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, it's easy for us to see that in the lives of other people, but often we have a hard time believing that in our own circumstances, that God is using everything in my life for his glory and my good. God was using Paul's adverse circumstances to do a work that probably could not have been done any other way. 
And that's what Paul wanted most in life anyway. That's what he wanted. What a beautiful picture of God's sovereignty at work. Paul wanted desperately to be used by God to, to bring the gospel into Rome, into the inner circle, if you will, of Rome, right into the imperial leadership of Rome. But there's absolutely no way he could have done it as a free man, and so God made him a prisoner. So Paul got the desire of his heart. It just didn't look like he thought it was going to look. It looked way different than he thought it was going to look. Fabulous insight into God's sovereignty at work. So Paul closes his letter. He says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, or some manuscripts, with your spirit. Amen. Why does Paul wish, wish grace for them? Because they needed it, just like we all need it. We dare not think that we needed God's grace when we were dead in sin, but now that he has saved us, we don't need grace anymore. That's laughable. We didn't deserve to be saved, and we don't deserve to be kept saved. It's all by God's grace. Interesting note, every letter Paul wrote ends with a wish for the grace of Christ, or the grace of God, to be multiplied to his readers, because although the letter ends, life goes on. Life doesn't end. And as life goes on, we need divine grace. In Romans 5, 1 and 2, Paul said, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace. Now listen to these next few words. In which we stand. We're saved by grace. We stand in grace. And in 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul even took it a step further. He said, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Paul knew it was God's grace that had saved him, but he also knew that it was God's grace that continued to make him what he was. In 2 Corinthians 12, 9, which we looked at in some detail a couple messages ago, Paul says that on one occasion after Paul had asked the Lord, please remove this thorn in the flesh, Paul said, to the Lord, said that the Lord told him, listen, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. In other words, no, Paul, I'm not going to take that away. No, but I will give you more grace. Paul's response to that supply of divine grace was this. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasures in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul knew that he needed God's grace as a saint just as much as he needed God's grace when he was a lost sinner because a saint is nothing more than a saved sinner awaiting the full expression of sainthood when we are glorified and receive our new bodies in heaven. So we are saved by the grace of God. We are kept by the grace of God. We stand in the grace of God. We are what we are by the grace of God. We live by the grace of God. Paul knew that, which is why he always closed his letters 
with a wish for the grace of Christ to be multiplied to his readers. As I said, although the letter ends, life goes on, and as life goes on, we need divine grace. Now, I want to I close our study of this letter the same way God in his sovereignty began the church in Philippi. So back up to Acts 16 as we close. We go from the end of the letter to the beginning of the church. Acts chapter 16. This chapter records the birth of the church at Philippi. Quick background here. Because of the way God used Paul in the city of Philippi, Paul and Silas ended up in jail. And you probably are familiar with the story. Acts 16, beginning in verse 25, it says, But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. We know from what follows, the prisoners weren't the only ones listening. So were the jailers. Verse 26, Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were loosed, and the keeper of the prison, awakening from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Well, why would he do that? Because he knew that what he would experience would be far worse than taking his own life by falling on his sword. As a Roman soldier or a Roman jailer, you don't lose a prisoner. Because what you will receive by way of punishment will be far worse than just falling on your sword. So he's going to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice. We don't know how Paul knew this was going to happen. Possibly the guy's, you know, up in the doorway sort of silhouetted with the back light. And he sees him pull out his sword and he's about to thrust it through. But somehow Paul knew it was, it was going to happen. So Paul called with a loud voice saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. And he called for a light, ran in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? How did he know to ask that question? Well, we can't say dogmatically, but in all likelihood, the songs that Paul and Silas were singing at midnight were songs that talked about being saved. And so he knew the question, what must I do to be saved? And then their classic answer, so they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And that's a great way to close a look at Paul's letter to the Philippians. In fact, I would say to any who are here and are not saved, on the authority of God's word, I can say to you today, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will become saved a saint. You'll be numbered among those who are set apart to God to live a holy life for his glory. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. What does the Bible mean when it says believe? Well, it doesn't just mean to believe in the sense of intellectual assent. Believing on the Lord Jesus Christ isn't just believing that he lived a sinless life, died on the cross, and rose again. Believing on the Lord Jesus Christ is believing all those facts to the point where you turn from your sin to receive him as your Lord and Savior. 
believing on the Lord Jesus Christ is submitting your life to him in childlike faith. That's the message that began the church at Philippi. That's the gospel message that began the church, and it's a great way to end our look at Paul's letter to that ancient church. Let's bow together as we close. Father, thank you for encouraging our hearts with your word. Thank you so very much that you are willing to call us saints, holy ones. And we immediately acknowledge that we don't always live saintly. We don't always live as holy as we ought to live. And yet you call us saints because of our position in Christ, because you have saved us and set us apart unto yourself. And because of that, we should live holy lives. And Father, as we close our look at Philippians chapter 4, seeing how you used Paul in the midst of what surely to him at times was troubling and confusing and even, even less than desirous, as we see in the book of Acts, when he says, I wish that all men were as I am, yet apart from these chains. So we know that Paul was no different than any of us in the sense that he would rather have not been a prisoner in Rome. He would have rather been a free man. And yet he could say throughout this letter to the Philippians, for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. So my greatest desire, more than a desire to be free, my greatest desire is to magnify Christ and to be used of him. And Father, now from our perspective, we can see how you used Paul in such a unique way in, in his ministry to those there at Rome, but even to us by, by giving us the, the uh, prison epistles of Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and Philemon letters of Holy Scripture that are in our Bibles today because, in a sense, because Paul was a prisoner in Rome. And so use that fact, that truth, to remind us that when we go through circumstances in life and situations in life that don't look like we anticipated them looking or are less than what we would desire, teach us to trust you, to trust that you know what you're doing, to trust that you are working and you are causing all things to work together for our good and for your glory, which is our greatest desire anyway. So we pray these things in the precious and matchless name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.